Hey everybody, our board slash OITE podcast companion book is now available for you to follow along and take notes with our podcast review. Just click the link in the description. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Regardless of your residency program year, the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Platform developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons is right for you. Free to residents, ROCK is an online learning program that covers 11 subspecialty areas with content that's been authored and curated by some of the leading names in orthopedics. And residents can access content for free at rock.aos.org. Get started today. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. You're listening to our OITE review series. My name is Dr. Cole and myself and Dr. Spencer Wilwine have been uh, doing this review series for a little while now for the boards and for our OITEs. Uh, we actually thought this was going to take us six months when we first started, but it has been a couple years and we are still going strong. Um, so if you have not already, please go ahead and tell a friend about this podcast and uh, I won't talk for too much. So let's go ahead and get into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. I think we've covered kind of just some general hip stuff, but now moving in a little bit, a little bit more into kind of the biomechanics and templating, uh, which I honestly, I don't think I understood templating until this year because we don't, we didn't template um, at my program until this year because we had a new joints attending come back and he brought the templating stuff. So before that, we never templated. So when I looked at saw those questions on the test, I was like, well, I'm just going to go ahead and just click C and move, <laughs> and move forward. <laughs> But uh, start off. Um, what is what is the hip offset? You know, just talking some biomechanics of the hip. So hip offset. When when arthroplasty attendings are talking about it, it's basically it's the distance from the center of the femoral head to the anatomic axis of the femur. Another way to think about it is uh, kind of how far lateral is the femur sitting in comparison to the femoral head. So uh, another uh, kind of way to visualize this, if you don't have a computer in front of you, like if you're uh, driving on your way to, to work or at the gym or something like that, uh, a varus hip uh, will typically have more offset because the femur is sitting more lateral than the femoral head, but a valgus hip, like ones that we were looking at with the developmental dysplasia of the hip, and it's a more vertical-based femur, those are going to have less offset because the femoral shaft is sitting more medial and closer to the femoral head. And, and this comes into play when uh, templating for your hips and uh, wanting to recreate as normal anatomy as the patient has previously as possible when you are uh, conducting your arthroplasty because this is going to help with soft tissue tensioning and prevention of dislocation. So offset is how far lateral is the femur shaft compared to the femoral head. And so um, there's uh, the, the hip is very complex, similar to the shoulder in its kind of motion and uh, where it is in space. So what's the relationship between the hip, the abductors, and a person's body weight? Dude, man, 
like this topic i was trying so hard to like avoid it through residency and then for this uh <laughs> for this podcast i think i must have read at least like three or four different sources before it finally started to make sense to me i don't know why this is this took so long to make sense to me but um when we're looking at the hip the abductors and the body weight uh, the hip acts as as like a fulcrum, right? So it allows equilibrium between your body weight and the opposing abductors. Your abductors being your like your gluteus, uh, medius, minimus, you know, the, the hip abductors. So when you look at the distance between the femoral head and the abductors, like if you imagine you're looking at an x-ray and you get the distance between the femoral head and the abductors and you compare that with the distance between the femoral head and all of your body weight, there's less distance between the femoral head and the abductors. Thus, in order to maintain an equilibrium, the abductors um, generate a larger uh, force. Um, and um, so the abductors that's gener- generate a larger force and increase the joint reactive uh, forces. Um, um, yeah, so if you look at the distance between the femoral head and the abductors, and you compare that with the distance between the femoral head and the body or, you know, your body weight, there's less distance in between the femoral head and the abductors. Therefore, in order to maintain that equilibrium, the abductors um, create uh, or generate a larger force and have an increased joint reactive forces more than kind of the, the body weight. So the abductors need to generate an increase or an increased um, force in order to allow for that equilibrium because there's less space or less distance between the femoral head and the abductors where they insert over on the greater trochanter versus the femoral head in the body. And I added a second question here just to, <laughs> just to drive the point home in case I confused anybody with the first one. Um, but so when you're assessing joint reactive forces, what are the two lever arms to pay attention to? Yeah, so the main ones you want to pay attention to are the medial lever arm, which is the distance from the hip center to the center of body weight. So uh, looking at an AP pelvis, you're basically just measuring the distance from the pubic symphysis to the center of rotation of the hip. And then the lateral lever arm, uh, you're looking at the distance from the hip center to the greater trochanteric slash abductor uh, mechanism. And the body lever arm, uh, which is the more medial lever arm, is typically two and a half times longer than the abductor one. So your abductors, in a sense, have to uh, be able to uh, pull two and a half times the body weight because that distance is so much shorter. Um, And I I think that we uh, will probably get into it a little bit uh, more with the uh, joint reactive forces, but it will uh, be useful to kind of talk about it a little bit now because we do like repeating stuff and really driving the point home. So uh, you may get asked on the OITE and ABOS on joint reactive forces and what happens when you template a hip. So if you uh, medialize the acetabular component, meaning you make the body weight or the body lever arm shorter, you are going to decrease the joint reactive forces because now the abductors 
don't have to pull as much to keep uh, the body centered over the hip uh, because you're, you're shortening the body lever arm and you're, and you're keeping the lateral lever arm the same. If you increase offset, meaning you move the greater trochanter further lateral than the femoral head, uh, you are also going to decrease the joint reactive forces because the abductors are having to work less uh, than they would before. But if you decrease offset and you keep the body lever arm the same, you're going to increase joint reactive forces because now your abductors are working with a shorter lever. And now that that lever might be uh, three times as short as the body lever arm. And so now the abductors have to work three times as much rather than two and a half times as much. So now the joint reactive forces are going up and I uh, probably have thoroughly confused everybody. <laughs> and so I apologize for that. But if it, if it comes up again in this talk, we'll talk about it all over again. And uh, also this will be a good time to kind of make a mental note, like go back and, and just, I mean, just search joint reactive forces in Google yeah. and uh, a bunch of diagrams will come up that um, should start to kind of make sense. And so, This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Are you an orthopedic resident? Then you need to know about ROCK. It's a new resident orthopedic core knowledge program developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Created for U.S. residency programs and free to residents, ROCK covers 11 subspecialties and is filled with in-depth, comprehensive content and quizzes that have been authored and vetted by some of the leading experts in orthopedics. This all-in-one curriculum will give you the foundation and knowledge you need to become a successful board-certified orthopedic surgeon. And remember, access to ROCK content is free to residents. Get started at rock.aaos.org. Uh, I, I talked about it a little bit here, but let's uh, kind of repeat um, uh, some of these topics. What is the difference between a varus and valgus hip in regard to the hip biomechanics yeah this is something i saw and um i was reading and took a took a note of it but in, in a valgus hip uh they know that there's actually maybe an improved mechanical advantage of the abductors just because you have increased tension on the abductor uh mechanism because i guess it's inserting a little bit more distal so you have more tension so you don't have to work as much versus in the varus hip it may generate um, greater forces across the hip center um now what are some of the biomechanical changes seen in hip osteoarthritis yeah so these are going to be the uh um the kind of things that you are going to have to recreate or get back to the patient's normal uh, when you're treating arthritis. So um, with arthritis, you might have osteonecrosis of the femoral head and femoral head collapse. Um, what, what that does is it, uh, uh, it kind of shortens the femoral neck and it also shortens the abductor tension moment uh, because you're, like you said, with the more valgus hips, the abductors are going to have a lot of tension on them because the greater trochanter is further away from the iliac crest. Uh, but the 
patient with the femoral head collapse, that's going to push the greater trochanter more superior and shorten the distance between the greater trochanter and the iliac crest. Um, the, what's going to happen with that when you have the neck shorten and the uh, kind of femur move more medial, uh, it's going to increase the joint reactive forces that is going to increase hip pain and it's going to worsen arthritis over time. So how you are going to recreate that hip is by bringing the uh, hip center back down with the uh, in the native position with the acetabular component. And then you're going to lengthen the neck or give increased offset to help restore that uh, abductor moment. And you're going to then decrease joint reactive forces and improve the patient's pain, stability, and mobility. So uh, again, when the femoral head collapses and the neck shortens, you have increased joint reactive forces. And so uh, I, I talked about it, but we can go over it again. What happens when you increase the offset? Yeah, you just mentioned this. Uh, but when you increase the hip offset, again, that's, you know, it can be the distance between the femoral head and the um, anatomical axis of the femur. When you increase the hip offset, your your abductors work less to keep the equilibrium because you just mentioned before uh, when you have arthritis and you have the neck shortening that your abductors um, lose tension and so that's going to cause them to work more and increase the reactive forces but when you actually increase the offset of the hip your abductors work less to keep the equilibrium and your joint reactive forces decrease and you mentioned this earlier as well but what happens when you medialize the hip center rotation you medialize the hip center of rotation. And also, I guess one thing to quickly point out when these questions are going to come up on OIT and ABOS, uh, think about them in a singular sense, meaning they're just going to talk about medializing the hip center of rotation. They're not going to ask you what's the difference in joint reactive forces if we put the cup here, offset here, lengthen here, do this, do that. Like they're not going to ask you to evaluate uh, five different things. It's just purely going to be all things being equal. If we medialize the cup versus lateralize the cup, what's going to be the difference? So if we medialize the cup and medialize the hip center of rotation, you have a longer lever arm for the abductors and you're going to have decreased work of uh, abductors and decrease the joint reactive forces. So um, what are some things that you can do in surgery to help optimize joint reactive forces? <laughs> and, and so again, um, you can medialize the acetabular cup because like you just said, it's going to give you a longer uh, lever arm for the abductors and decrease the amount of work needed for the abductors. Um, and you can restore femoral offset to maximize abductor, uh, abductor tension and leg length for normal gait. So we are medializing the cup to increase the lever arm for the abductors and decrease the amount of work that's needed. And then we're gonna restore the offset that was lost. Remember, cause we said these patients, um, you know, they, they had femoral head collapse and their neck shortens, and then they lose that tension, which increases your reactive force. So in uh, what we do in surgery is we restore the femoral offset to maximize the abductor uh, abductor tension and leg length for normal gait. Um, now that 
it's kind of you know has to do with our joint reactive force now in regards to sagittal balance what is the goal orientation for the hip center in relation to the spine so we're looking at the everything from the side now sagittal balance so what do we want the hip center to be at in relationship to the spine so ideally uh yeah looking at a lateral you're going to have the hip center kind of fall in line with that uh with the spine or that that plumb line that we uh talked about in uh our spine lectures with sagittal balance of the spine where it goes from have the anterior body of C7 down through the center of the S1 uh, vertebral body uh, and then keeps just going down through the floor. If you can uh, put the cup in the center of that, then uh, the, the body is going to still function in a very upright uh, position. If uh, And this is where the... Um, like hip spine relationship comes into play and how much of a lumbar lordosis versus kyphosis does the patient have? Luckily, they're not really testing on a lot of that stuff quite yet because it's still uh, being kind of ironed out in the literature. But um, yeah, if you can have the hip center under the center of the spine on the sagittal view or on the lateral view, then uh, you're going to have all of those forces go straight where they're supposed to be, not too anterior or too posterior for the patient. Um, and so what, uh, I, we talked about this with the spine, but we'll also, we'll just keep going back to it. What pelvic parameters change with the position of the body? Yeah, so that's going to be your pelvic tilt and the sacral slope. Um, and yeah, we did talk about this in spine. And so one of the things that we did note was that there's some, the pelvic tilt and the sacral slope, those are the only things that changed in position with the body. Um, there's some, the sum of the pelvic tilt and the sacral slope equals the pelvic incidence, which is going to be a fixed number. And we'll, we'll, we'll get to why this is uh, important with total hip arthroplasty shortly. Um, but what what sagittal balance changes occurs when you know when a patient when somebody's standing? So uh, for those of you that are sitting, just go from sitting to standing and see what happens to your own spine. You're going to have increased lumbar lordosis to stand upright because if you're like me right now, you're sitting hunched over with terrible posture, looking at a computer, <laughs> and when you stand, if you keep your back in that same position your body's going to fall forward. So to prevent that, you're going to increase your lumbar lordosis to stand more upright. What happens is sacral slope then increases because your pelvis flexes uh, and your pelvic tilt decreases while maintaining a, uh, a standard uh, pelvic incidence. So when you stand, Sacral slope increases, pelvic tilt decreases, and lumbar lordosis increases. And so um, when you go from standing to sitting, what's that, what sagittal balance changes occur? Yeah. So when you go from um, when you go from standing to sitting, uh, you have increased pelvic tilt. Um, so your hip is when you sit, your hip is going to be extended, which brings the hip center more anterior. It was kind of the opposite of what I initially thought happened um, is when regarding like the pelvic tilt. Um, but so again, pelvic tilt is going to be increased when you sit. 
And again, what this is, when you think about it, the hip is going to be more extended, which is going to bring the hip center more anterior. Um, so when you have increasing tilt or increasing pelvic tilt, you also can have increased acetabular antiversion, which helps prevent anterior impingement of the femoral neck onto the antiversion. So and a, a way to think about kind of this, what this pelvic tilt is, is, is I think of pelvic tilt is going to be the degree of pelvic extension. So just to review, when we sit down, our pelvic tilt is increased and we have increased pelvic extension. And this brings the, uh, the hip center more anterior. Um, so why is why are we even talking about this? Like, why is pelvic tilt or sacral slope important in total hip arthroplasty? Yeah, so I uh, kind of talked about it, but when we're talking about lumbo-pelvic motion, um, which is becoming uh, much more mainstream, I guess you could say, uh, because before we thought about things in a very focused sense. If you did hip arthritis and you did total hips, you just you put the total hip in with your standard 40 degrees of uh, inclination, 20 degrees of anversion, and you did that for everybody. And most patients did really well, but you had a subset of patients that either had recurrent instability, persistent symptoms, uh, increased polywear, whatever. And so people started to look at, well, what if we evaluated the hip and the spine and we started looking at the changes that occur with either a stiff spine, flexible spine, sitting, standing, and that's where all this lumbo-pelvic uh, kind of thought stems from. And uh, basically, you have to look at it to minimize your total hip dislocation risk because if somebody has a really stiff spine, they're not going to be able to uh, compensate much uh, in order to prevent a dislocation. So sitting after a total hip can risk a posterior dislocation because you have anterior impingement. Um, and if they uh, have a history of lumbar fusion, then you have, or if they have like ankylosing spondylitis or just really bad uh, lumbar degenerative disease, they're going to have decreased lumbopelvic motion and a higher dislocation risk because their, their spine can no longer accommodate for uh, kind of increasing the uh, pelvic tilt to increase the acetabular antiversion. And so if their spine is fixed, then they're going to have increased anterior impingement and that hip is going to want to push out posterior and have a higher dislocation risk. So in patients with a more stiff spine, you may actually kind of factor in a little bit more antiversion than you otherwise normally would to help uh, contain the hip a little bit more and minimize that anterior impingement, so. Thank you all for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you learned something. Now stay tuned because we do have the companion book, actually the book that you can hold in your hands and take notes on. That will be coming out soon, so stay tuned and we'll see you next time.